This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. It begins on page 858 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysandias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Brian, I'm one of the pastors here, and my, my voice held up to the very end of the sermon during the first service. Last night, I was yelling at the TV and nerve eating, I think, uh, just shoving food in my mouth. Um, during the Bengals game. So hopefully uh, I'll hold up through the end here. But if I have a coughing fit, that's probably why. That and too much coffee. Well, did you know that this building was built uh, about 100 years ago? It's its 100th birthday this year. It was built in 1922 and 23. Now, we haven't been into this building forever, only about the last seven or so years. When our church started, we met in another church uh, building on Sunday nights, borrowing from another church. Then we met for a number of years in a cafetorium down at John Parker School. Some of y'all remember those days. But in 2013, we bought this building. And it took about 11 months to renovate. And then on our uh, youngest daughter, Quinn's fifth birthday, November 23rd, 2014, we had our first Sunday morning worship service 
here. Uh, During the renovations, we were talking about what we should do color-wise and all the decisions that have to be made. And we struck on this idea of coordinating our colors of our kids' rooms with prints by the artist Jago. He's uh, an artist from England. He did the illustrations for the Jesus Storybook Bible. That's probably how we might be most familiar with him. You should check out the kids' rooms. Walk around sometime and look at the kids' rooms uh, and all of his artwork and things there. I really like his illustrations. I have this one hanging in my office. Um, It's a downcast sheep from the book, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. That's another story, though, maybe for another sermon sometime. Anyway, a number of years ago, my friend Matt Jumper tweeted out, I think Brian Ferry may have been the model for John the Baptist in the Jesus Storybook Bible, tagging the artist and said, what say you? And he responded, brilliant. You were obviously a subconscious uh, inspiration. So there you go. Maybe that's why I get to preach... Maybe that's why I get to preach this text this morning. An uncanny resemblance to a cartoon, John the Baptist. Now kids, if you're sticking with us for the rest of the service this morning, you can turn to page 200 in the Jesus Storybook Bible and see what you think. Uh, and um, that's our story, also our story for this morning. And if you want to draw your version of John the Baptist and or me, um, I'd love to see it afterwards. Now, I'm not super keen on the bugs flying around Uh, But I suspect that they're bees because of the honey and not like bugs living in his hair or beard. Anyway, so other than my doppelganger, who is this guy? John the Baptist. We're going to take a look at that this morning. And it'll go like this. John the man, John's message, and then John's mission. Look at the man, the message, and the mission. And before we get to John... Here in Luke 3, there's some preliminary information that's important. Luke begins with a pile of names. He starts with seven incredibly powerful people. You've got political leaders, Tiberius Caesar, who liked to require that he be worshipped as a god. You have Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. And if you're familiar with the Jesus story, you know he plays a pretty significant role later on. You have Herod and Philip. And Lysanias, who were tetrarchs, that is, they were puppet kings, teed up through nepotism, ruling over sections of a sliced-up Israel. It's not just political leaders listed. We've got religious leaders named here who are in cahoots with the oppressors. They're drunk off of and drafting off of the power of the governmental rulers. Caiaphas, the high priest, another name like Pilate that comes up later in the story. And then Annas, who's the head of the Sanhedrin. Pastor Aaron Baker says these guys ruled by oppression and they ruled by fear and they ruled by intimidation and they ruled by the threat of swift, merciless violence if you got out of line. Luke piles up these names not because he's an imperial history buff and wants us to be impressed, but rather precisely because he wants them to land with a thud. He wants the readers to feel the weight of the societal climate. He wants them to feel the oppression, the darkness to feel their need. And they would feel all of that hearing these names. For us, they're just names in history. But they would have felt this heaviness. It's also important to note that these are real people at a particular time in history, at a particular place. This story isn't once upon a time. It's at this time with God's people under the thumb of these men. That's it. It's like a... When Han Solo says to Rey in The Force Awakens, I used to wonder about all that myself. He says, I thought it was a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, a magical power holding together good and evil on the dark side and light. The crazy thing is, it's true, all of it. It's all true. 
Han Solo is talking about the Jedi. And, but Luke is kind of saying the same thing by listing all these actual names. He's saying the crazy thing is it's all true. It happened in history at an actual time among real people. Remember back at the beginning of this, the Gospel of Luke, Josh preached on this a couple of weeks ago. Luke says that that's what he's setting out to do, to write an orderly, trustworthy account of what actually happened. In fact, there's a story of a 19th century Scottish archaeologist, Sir William Ramsey, who taught at the University of Edinburgh, and he was a skeptic about Jesus and the truth of the Bible. He believed that the Bible was much more of a fairy tale, much more once upon a time, and it was full of all kinds of errors. To prove his point, he traveled to Asia Minor to prove Luke's unreliability. Well, in the process, Ramsey the skeptic returned to Great Britain as a believer. Every one of Luke's facts checked out as he was doing his studies. His conclusion was that Luke was a highly reliable historian. Like Han Solo, it's true, all of it. And one more preliminary observation about the scene into which John arrives. There's been hundreds and hundreds of years of silence. No prophet, no word from God, And no sign of the promised Messiah, just silence. And then here comes weird old John. So what do we know about John? First, we know he's a PK. Stands for preacher's kid or priest's kid in this case. Remember back in Advent, we heard the story of John's extraordinary birth. His folks, Elizabeth and Zechariah, who was the priest, they were old, past the age of having kids. And yet, surprise, here comes John. Zechariah ends up unable to speak for the duration of the pregnancy. And after the baby was born, Zechariah named him John. And he prophesied about his son being filled with the Holy Spirit. And see, we see here in this passage today, Zechariah's prophecy coming to fruition. So we know he's a priest's kid. We know that he's John's, uh, he, John is Jesus' cousin. You might remember that uh, back in Advent, we talked about how Mary visited Elizabeth. And in utero, John is a baby and his mother's stomach leaped for joy. He's Jesus' cousin. And we know the, the word of God came to him. We see this in verse 2. Now, this is a big deal. Remember, there's been no prophet, no word from God for about 400 years. And this phrase, the word of God came, would have rang a bell for Luke's initial readers. The same phrase is used for the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures. First, Corinthians, or First Chronicles 17, the word of God comes to Nathaniel. In Jeremiah 7, the word of God came to Jeremiah. 1 Kings 21, the word of God came to Elijah, and so on. You get the picture. This is prophetic language. It's a big deal. John is the next prophet in a line of all those prophets. Fourthly, we see that John was out in the wilderness. I learned that the Greek word for this is eremos. It's also translated desert, desolate place, solitary place, quiet place. Interestingly, this is the same word for wilderness that we'll hear about next week when we look at Jesus' temptation in John chapter 4. And in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer says this about the wilderness. He says, the wilderness isn't the place of weakness, it's the place of strength. It was there and only there that Jesus was at the height of his spiritual powers. And we'll see that Jesus got away to the wilderness in the same way that John was out in the wilderness, listening, praying, preparing, preaching. So John's the pastor's kid out in the wilderness hearing from God. And as if that's not weird enough, we don't get the description here, but in the other gospels, he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. 
He wore a smock made out of a camel and ate bugs. Frederick Buechner says he wore clothes that even rummage sale people wouldn't have handled. So John's a classic, intense, eccentric prophet out preaching in the Jordan River Valley in the wilderness, calling people to reckon with their sin, which leads to John's message. Now, with the social and political climate I just described, what do you think the message would be for a prophet of Israel? Maybe something like, God will rescue you from the foreign oppressor and corrupt religious leaders. Freedom is coming. We probably expect a lot of anti-Roman rhetoric, some hope, maybe a promise of power and influence and prosperity and blessing, political and economic freedom were the felt needs of the people. And yet, what is John's message? He says, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Where's the freedom from oppression? Where's the promise of better days? Where's the hope of a rescuer who will overthrow the government and get back to the good old days with a king like David on the throne in Israel? Well, that message wasn't in John's mouth. The actual politics, all the power brokers Luke mentioned, don't seem to really matter at all to John. Luke lists them, but John doesn't seem to care at all. Just this past December, Pastor Bruce Clark wrote this about the politics and earthly power here in Luke's gospel. He writes, Luke introduces the reader to some of the most powerful political powers of the time, and indeed of all time, only then to ignore them. For all their political power, these political powerhouses are of little or no consequence to the coming of the king, of astonishing little consequence. In the kingdom of God, the currency of political power has a value almost akin to the currency of monopoly money. It fulfills a humble and divinely ordained role, to be sure, but it can fool its owner into believing that it has a potency and a permanence that it simply doesn't. Apparently, the awesome political power of Caesar Augustus or Herod the Great just isn't that great. Who are people going to see? The guy talking politics and promising political power in the capital? Nope. They're flocking to see the weirdo eating bugs and dressed in camel skin and going on about the coming kingdom and the coming judgment. John's message, repent. Now, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've probably heard this word and you may be tired of it. Yeah, 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 repent, repentance, I get it. The words are kind of grimy and greasy with use. And if you're new to the church, you may associate the word with some guy in a bathrobe holding a bullhorn and a sandwich board outside the ballpark. But the word repent is important. It's essential. Martin Luther's first, uh, the 95 Theses says, the whole life of believers should be repentance. The whole life of believers should be repentance. To repent means to turn, to change one's mind, to turn from sin and turn to the Lord. We begin our journey of following Jesus with repentance. And it's repentance each step of the way. John's message of repentance pulls no punches. Frederick Buechner again, he says, the kingdom was coming all right, he said, but if you thought it was going to be a pink tea, you'd better think again. If you didn't shape up, God would give you the ax like an elm with the blight or toss you into the incinerator like chaff. He said being a Jew wouldn't get you any more points than being a stone. And one of his favorite ways of addressing his congregation was a snake pit. Why so intense, John? What's your deal? Well, he realizes that it's a matter of eternal life and death. 
And there is something attractive about this kind of intensity and fervor, isn't there? I mean, I mean, not only are the crowds flocking to the Jordan River Valley to hear him, but even today our pulses may quicken a little bit when we get a glimpse of what John's doing here. I mean, if I'm honest, I often wish I had more urgency like John. It's easy for me, it's easy for us to get comfortable and complacent, feeling no urgency at all about spiritual matters. We live in the most affluent, free society the world has ever seen. You know, if John was around today, I can imagine good, comfortable, ordinary church folks saying something like this. Hey, let's go out to Claremont County to the Little River, Little Miami River and, and see that John guy everybody's talking about. It'd be a good religious experience for the kids. We can listen, dip our toes in the river, go tubing, maybe have them sprinkle us a little bit. It'd be fun. We'll make a day of it. But this isn't a game. Right? John isn't just a spectacle. This isn't some add-on to our religious life. This repentance, this is going to mess with everything. And John says, repent, change your mind, yes. But more than that, change your whole life. John's calling for an entirely new way of living that's setting up the way of life we're called to in the kingdom of heaven under King Jesus. And John's intensity and his message was provoking questions from those listening. The crowd asked, what should we do? He says, if you have more than you need, clothing and food, share with those in need. The tax collectors who came out, they asked, well, what should we do? John says, stop being greedy. Don't take more than you are allowed to by law. And the soldiers, they said, well, what about us? What should we do? John says, stop abusing your power. No extortion, no threats, no false accusations. Be content with the wages that you make. John is getting personal. He's getting all up in their business here. He says, repent, and this is what it looks like. Be charitable, work for justice, and keep the peace. Don't abuse your power or position. You know, I was reading this this week. I was wondering if John might even be riffing off of Micah 6.8 here, which apparently they'd all forgotten and weren't practicing. Prophet Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We might say this repentance that John is talking about isn't just repentance in name only, but a repentance with teeth, with some action behind it. St. Augustine said, repentance for our sins does indeed change us for the better, but even repentance will not appear to be of much use to us if works of mercy do not accompany it. Even repentance will not appear to be of much use to us if works of mercy do not accompany it. A great example of this is our little friend Zacchaeus. If you grew up in Sunday school, you might remember Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he... It's in Luke 19. Zacchaeus, a rich, notorious tax collector. Tax collectors were in league with the Roman oppressors, Jews who worked for them and collecting taxes, making their money by collecting above and beyond what they had to. Hence, John's challenge to them to collect only what the law required. So Zacchaeus is a rich tax collector, which meant he really fleeced people. So short guy wants to see Jesus, but there's too big of a crowd. So he climbs a tree to get a better view of the Jesus parade passing by, and Jesus stops, sees him in the tree, and invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. Zacchaeus climbs down, and he received Jesus joyfully into his house. 
And here's the point, right? After turning around, after repenting, Zacchaeus says this, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He puts his money where his mouth is. His repentance, his encounter with Jesus has completely changed the way that he lives. His repentance bears fruit, works of mercy accompanying his repentance. Using John's litmus test, how did Zacchaeus do? Generous? Check. Giving half of his goods to the poor. Just? Check. He says he's willing to make restitution if he's defrauded anyone, including interest, paying it back fourfold. Humility, contentment, not abuse, power, position, or privilege. It's not explicitly stated here. We don't know what happened with the rest of the story, but we can probably all agree that if it would be quite ugly and disgusting and not real repentance if, after all that, Zacchaeus just went back to the tax booth getting rich off of his, the backs of the poor and extorting money from his neighbors. And Jesus says about Zacchaeus, he says, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Remember in our passage we just read, it says that God can make sons of Abraham out of stones. God can even make sons of Abraham out of the stony, greedy tax collectors. John's message, repent. Now, at this point, we might still be thinking, this guy needs a branding agency or a press secretary or something. But folks were listening, so much so that everyone was wondering if John himself might be the Messiah. See, they'd been expectant. They were wondering, waiting. Could he be the one? The problem with that is, John says, nope, it's not me. And John knows that a moral renewal movement is not going to cut it. As important and as critical as repentance from wicked ways is, a rededication of your efforts, a new commitment to be moral, a New Year's resolution, new atomic habits, even the best generosity, justice, and selflessness won't save anyone. And John knows it. You catch the part where John says being religious isn't going to cut it. Growing up in a religious household isn't going to do it. God has to do it. He can make children of God from stones. He can make you with the stony hearts children of God, John says. But God has to do it. He has to do it. We need saving. We need to be saved, which leads to John's mission. John's message was repent. John's mission is to prepare and to point John's is a ministry of preparation and getting out of the way so that people could see Jesus. Shortly after Cheryl and I were married, we left our little urban row house in Covington. It was overlooking downtown in the river. And we moved from the city to the hills of eastern Kentucky, down near the Red River Gorge, 40 minutes from a grocery store, the end of a three-mile-long dead-end road, to work at a camp and retreat center. As the program director, one of my jobs was to prepare the cottages for groups to arrive. So the camp director coached me on how to sweep the front porch, how to make sure the firewood was stocked, make sure there were matches and fire starters by the fireplace, check the fridge for refreshments, check every single light bulb and every light switch to make sure that it came on, put welcome notes out and mints on the pillows and all that sort of thing. Well, I'll tell you, I thought this was ridiculous. I did not like this ministry at all. It felt like my time could be better spent, but it was my job and I had to do it. So I did it week after week with gritted teeth and grumbling under my breath like Yosemite Sam. 
And our director would explain to me why we did this. And after weeks and after months, I got it. He explained that ours was a ministry of hospitality and preparation. He called it removing obstacles to grace. That is, he used the example, if a group rolled into our retreat center at 7 o'clock on a Friday night in the woods and hills of Kentucky with hopes and expectations to encounter Jesus, if they walked up to the cottage and there was no lights on and maybe they tripped over something that was left there and the porch hadn't been swept and um, they stumbled inside only to flip a light switch and no lights would come on and all of a sudden they're not thinking about Jesus. They're not ready to encounter the Messiah. They're just thinking about like, where do I find a light bulb? And maybe they're frustrated solving that problem. You know, and eventually my hard heart came to realize and love a ministry of preparation and removing obstacles to grace because it's essential. And that's John's essential mission, one of preparation. He was removing obstacles to God's grace. And he knew what his role was. He was preparing. He was making a way. And when the time came, he pointed to Jesus. Everybody knew the prophecies. Before the Savior there would be an Elijah, a prophet, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, sweep the porch, make sure there's firewood, check the lights to make sure the light bulbs are working. He says, verse 16, there is one mightier than I coming, strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now to us, it's not really an idiom we would use, but the idea here is that untying the sandals was a nasty job that the lowest of the low servants would have to do. He would like fight over who was the lowest because that's who had to untie. I mean, think about it. You're walking around in sandals, no irrigation sewer systems, not pretty, right? It's a low job. If I was John, I'd be thinking, that's below me. I don't want to do that. I got better things to do. But John understands his role and he says, I'm not even worthy to do that for him. He is that great. In John's gospel, John the Baptist says this. He says, he, that is Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. John's preparing and pointing beyond himself to the one who is coming. Friends, ours is a ministry of preparing and pointing as well. Origen, one of the church fathers from around the second century, says this. I believe that the mystery of John is still being achieved in the world today. If anyone is going to believe in Jesus Christ, John's spirit and power first come to mind, first come to his soul and prepare a perfect people for the Lord. It makes the ways in the heart's rough places smooth and straightens out its path. We get to be a part of preparing the way for Jesus to work in this world in the lives of our friends and coworkers and classmates and neighbors. How can you prepare the way, removing obstacles to grace for those around you? Because we're to be a model home, church, a new city, a city on a hill, light, salt. It's what's described in Acts 2. They did it. People looked at the church there and they said, I don't know what they're drinking, but pour me a pint as well because I want that. How can you, how can we here at New City join in the ministry of John and prepare the way for Jesus? But to be honest, John's ministry was not one without troubles. His issue wasn't like mine where he felt like it was below him, but speaking truth to power made him some enemies, got him imprisoned, and eventually got him beheaded with his head on a platter at a party in Herod's house. 
And down in Luke 7, before John lost his head, while he was languishing in prison, John begins to question whether this is it. Is this the kingdom? Is Jesus the one? John sends messengers to Jesus and the disciples asking, Are you the one to come or shall we look for another? Wait, what? What do you mean, John? Should we look for another? Here John preached and prepared fervently, passionately, intensely pointing to Jesus. And yet here he is having second thoughts. He was preparing and pointing, but he he never really saw Jesus' ministry and saving act of death on the cross and resurrection from the grave come to fruition. He could envision it. He worked in preparation, but he didn't see it happen. You know, tomorrow is, is Martin Luther King Jr. Day here, and I have to think that the last words of the last speech given by Dr. King are an echo in the spirit of John the Baptist's ministry. Words of a John the Baptist-like figure in our time preparing the way. This was the night before he was assassinated, April 3rd, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee. He said this. You may have heard it before. He said, well, I don't know what will happen now. (coughs) Pardon me. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land and I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Ministry of preparation, pointing. As we wrap up, this sermon is about John the Baptist, but... Seeing as John was really all about Jesus, this sermon is really about Jesus. As Frederick Buechner said, where John preached grim justice and pictured God as a steely-eyed thresher of grain, Jesus preached forgiving love, pictured God as the host at a marvelous party or a father who can't bring himself to throw his children out even when they spit in his eye. Where John said people had better save their skins before it was too late, Jesus said it was God who saved their skins. And even if you blew your whole bankroll on liquor and sex like the prodigal son, it still wasn't too late. Where John ate locusts and wild honey in the wilderness with the church crowd, Jesus ate what he felt like in Jerusalem with as sleazy a bunch as you could expect to find. Where John crossed the other side of the street if he saw any sinners heading his way, Jesus seemed to have preferred their company. Where John baptized, Jesus healed. John was a prophet preparing the way. Jesus is the way. John came to warn, Jesus came to save. The way has been prepared. The way is being prepared. Come to Jesus. Let's pray as we prepare to come to the table and to feast. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.